This message is on tribulation, sometimes translated persecution. And I felt the need to do this because I don't think many people in the church today understand what tribulation really is from a biblical perspective. Right? I mean, we think of trials, we think of hard times. Again, a lot of Bibles interpret this word as persecution. And so we think it's when people mistreat us because we take a stand for the truth. Oh, I go to church and I didn't get that job because I posted a Bible verse on my Facebook page. Some people would take a hard stand and say, no, we don't know what persecution really is in America today because we have freedom. We have freedom of religion. We have freedom of speech. Nobody's martyring us the way it's happening in other places in the world. If you think you're a victim of persecution, maybe you need to look at the Christians in Somalia or the Christians in China where they're not allowed to meet publicly. They can be arrested for having a Bible. They could be thrown in jail and tortured and sledgehammers taken to the bones in their legs because of their stand for the truth. Americans don't know what persecution is. And I would agree with that, but I would also say most people in the church don't understand what persecution is from a biblical perspective, especially when it's sometimes better translated as tribulation. See, persecution is an outward force acting upon us. It's other people. Some of you might be thinking, no, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. There are spiritual demonic forces at work. So even when people are mean to us because of our faith, it's not really them. It's the spirit behind them. And that's true also. But even that refers to an external pressure. That's an external force. It's something outside of ourself that is trying to contain us or trying to change us or trying to make us do something or stop doing something, namely sharing the truth. Persecution happens perhaps on college campuses or in high school locker rooms where people are taking illicit substances and someone with morals who understands that putting foreign contaminants into our bodies for performance is not godly. We should not do it. And by taking a stand saying, I won't do it, there's peer pressure. Oh, come on. Everybody does it. It's necessary. It'll make you stronger so you can lift more, so you can be a better football player or wrestler or what have you. But even that is not tribulation from a biblical perspective, at least not the type of tribulation that I'd like to refer today, that I would like to discuss today. In Revelation chapter 7, John the Apostle sees four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so no wind would blow on the earth or the sea or against any tree. 
And I, he says, I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. He called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel, and it names the tribes and 12,000 from each. It's interesting that there's a seal of God put on the foreheads of the believers. Do you really think it's a literal seal, like there's a tattoo going onto the forehead of believers? Because if not, then we also must wonder and question if the mark of the beast that so many people talk about is a physical, literal thing that's a microchip, perhaps, that is injected into people's arms. Perhaps it represents the way people think. When you think of a seal on somebody's head, perhaps they're thinking the way God thinks. It's the symbolism of the crown of thorns that was placed on our Messiah on the day that he was betrayed and eventually crucified. That crown of thorns represents a dying to the way of this world, the way the people of this world think. We must renew our minds. And that seal of God on the foreheads of the people of God, perhaps, I believe, refers to thinking the way God thinks, dying to the ways of this world. And the mark of the beast going on people's right arm, representing the things that they do. These people work the way of the world according to the flesh, according to the beast. They are like the beast in the things that they do, and they are unlike God whose ways are above the ways of this world. But back to Revelation 7 and verse 9, after this, after seeing these 144,000, behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed John, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and where have they come from? In other words, who is this great multitude that no one can number, that comes from every nation and every tribe and all of the peoples and the people who diff speak different languages, standing before the throne of the God, standing before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Who are these people? The elder asks John. John says, Sir, you know. Why don't you tell me? I don't know. Maybe I could guess, but it would just be 
I guess. And this elder responds in chapter 7, verse 14 of Revelation. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And because they've done that, therefore they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And he will wipe away every tear from their eye. So who are these people? They are those who were martyred during the great tribulation. Now, it's not what you're thinking. Some of your Bibles will have great tribulation capitalized as if it's a specific event. Some of you are preconditioned and indoctrinated to think that it's a three and a half year period at the end of time. Some of you believe it's a seven year period at the end of time. And I would like to propose it's neither, but it's both. It is not referring to a specific set of days that leads up to the return of our Messiah. But it is. What if I told you that the actual meaning of that word translated tribulation is not persecution? It's not an outward pressure. It's an inward pressure. What if that tribulation is not something that is done to the helpless Christians, but it's something ordained by God for the Christians in order to help them grow, in order to help them achieve their identity in Christ? What if I told you that the very bad thing that you are going through right now that is causing you suffering was actually ordained from the foundations of the world to bring about within you a purity. And we all must go through it because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Jesus says, come one, come all, come as you are. But if you accept him, you cannot stay as you were. In Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 6, Paul names off a litany of sins homosexuals, slanderers, thieves, all kinds of things that are not looked upon. And he says, these people will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And that's what you were. In other words, the kingdom of heaven is not excluded from the people who do bad things. We've all done bad things. We all do bad things. But God is calling us out of those bad things. And he's calling us to a life of righteousness. We all know our favorite verse, Romans 8.28, that says, All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But we neglect Romans 8, 29 and following that says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become formed to the image of his son, 
you were predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What does that mean? What does it mean to be conformed to the image of Christ? Doesn't it mean to be made like him? We are to be made like him. We are to be changed from what we were into what he is. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 30 says, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So there's this progression of the calling that's placed upon the Christian. It begins with a call where God calls us each by name because he predestined us before that. He knew us from eternity past. He was intimately involved in the history that led up to our conception and our birth. He was intimately aware of all of the details that led to who we are. Because who we are is not just our genetics, it's our experiences, it's our memories, it's the things that we've done, and it's the things that have been done to us. Those he predestined, he also called. And you cannot be a believer without having been called. Have you been called? Have you heard God speak your name? Has he called you out of darkness into his light? Has he pulled you out of the miry pit and placed you on solid ground? Has he delivered you from fear, from worry, from depression, from anger, from bitterness, from sadness? Has he delivered you from sin, from the love of money, the love of material things, for the desire to be exalted above other people, to have power over them? Has he delivered you from these things? You see, when you were saved, you were justified. You were declared not guilty. It was as if you never even sinned. He separated your sins from you as far as the East is from the West. He gave you a love for his word and a love for his people. You no longer live for yourself. You live for him. But there's another piece that Christians today often overlook. It says that those he justified, those he forgave and declared not guilty, he justified. It doesn't end there. If you're justified, he also called you to be glorified, it says in Romans 8. Romans 5, 1 says, because we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have this peace. And then we have the rest of our life on this earth from the time that we were born again to the time that we leave this body to accomplish two primary goals. One of those is to be an ambassador for him. The other is to be changed into his image. Many Christians today are focused on going and making disciples. But really, are you making disciples or are you trying to make converts? That is the problem. We've been made converts, but very few of us have been discipled. 
very few of us have been taught how to follow Jesus, how to be like him. And yet that's the primary calling of a Christian. It's to be transformed, to be made into his image. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because our suffering produces endurance. No one has endurance as Jesus did. Someone who had done no wrong at all. Someone who had never made a mistake from a spiritual sense. I mean, I'm sure that he struck out playing baseball with his brothers a time or two. Or whatever the 2,000-year-old Hebrew equivalent of that would be. I'm sure there are times where he went fishing and lost the fish off the hook and experienced what that feels like when you have this sense of excitement about this big fish that you are pulling in to the shore only to lose it, that disappointment. I'm sure he knew what that felt like. Certainly he knew what it felt like to be rejected by people his neighbors, his brothers, even his own mom questioned him. Things got really crazy for Jesus when he stepped into the ministry. They tried to bring him home a couple of times. Jesus, stop making a scene. But he endured. He endured even to the point of the cross. Even while he was on the cross, breathing his last breath, People were insulting him and making fun of him. And yet he counted equality with God as not something to be held on to. He endured the suffering because he saw the hope of glory and he shares that with us. And he knew that that suffering was producing endurance and he was setting an example for us. And that's why we should rejoice in our suffering because it's producing in us something that would never be produced. It would never be produced if we didn't embrace it. Endurance produces character. A lot of Christians are lacking in character today, wouldn't you say? We see Christian leaders around the world falling as their hidden sins are being exposed. What harm is that doing to young believers, to baby Christians who have looked up to these people and placed them in pedestals? No, we should never put another person on a pedestal. We should never exalt somebody thinking that they are better than us. But at the same time, we should never think that we are better than others. That's why it's important that this endurance is allowed, is allowed to do its work. To produce character in us so that God can trust us. Can God trust you to lead his people well? Can God trust you to lead people who you don't like? On the other side of that coin, can God trust you to lead people who you might really like a lot. Maybe they're physically attractive and single. Can God trust you with him or with her? As we grow our character, it produces in us hope. 
And hope will never put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. But let's go back to Revelation 7.14 in light of this producing of character. Because I would argue that the Bible is telling us very clearly that our tribulations our struggles, our trials, the pain of this world is what is producing in us character. Back to the elder speaking in Revelation 7.14, these dressed in white robes are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. That word great there, megalos, it's the same word we get mega from. What does that mean? In plain English today, what does the word mega mean? It means big. It means a lot. And abundant. It's a big tribulation. And I would argue that every Christian goes through a big tribulation. But let's define that word tribulation comes from the Greek word philipsis. Strong's 20. It refers to a pressure, something that constricts or rubs together. It's used of a narrow place that hems someone in. An internal pressure that causes someone to feel confined, restricted, without options. Have you ever been guilty of a sin? A secret sin, something that you thought you could get away with, only to be found out. And when you were found out, how did you feel? The embarrassment, the shame, the not wanting to deal with it, and yet knowing that you had to. Maybe your sin was even so big that you had to go to court. Maybe your name was even in the paper and people were watching you. Some people who knew you and lots who didn't. And you go to court and you're just thinking, I want this to be over. There's probably a temptation to even end it at all. Sure, there are demons whispering in your ear at that point. Just end it all. Just Go jump off a bridge. Go drive your car off a cliff. Go take these pills and mix it with that drink. The pain is too great. Nobody will ever trust you again. You're a loser. Feel the shame. Don't you wish you were dead so you never have to feel this way again? And that's not the way to righteousness, as you know. And for all of us, we go through this and we feel this shame, this embarrassment when we're caught in a lie, when we're busted for stealing, when you've cheated on your spouse and you get found out and it's in that moment you can choose. You can choose the easy way out and end it all. You can drown that uncomfortable feeling with alcohol. You can mask it with drugs. 
You can cover it up and become a workaholic. You can move far away and start over, and yet those things will chase you until you deal with them. But the one who is willing to endure it, to go through that uncomfortable space of being confined, of being hemmed in, of being constricted, like you're being squeezed. The one who stands up and is willing to admit that they've done wrong and that they're willing to put in the hard work to become a better person. That is character development 101. When our children sin, we should make them feel loved and forgiven and yet not excuse their behavior. We have to let our children know that it's inexcusable to sin. It's not okay. They must repent. And it's uncomfortable to repent, but it's necessary. That is what it means to don the white robe of Christ's righteousness, not from a justification standpoint, from a glorification standpoint. We must grow. We must be sanctified. He chooses us. He sets us apart. He declares it's done. And then we have the hard work of being changed, of growing our character, of being glorified, of being made like him. You guys know the story of Joseph in Genesis, where he was sold into slavery by his brothers because they were jealous of him. They hated him. He was daddy's favorite. It wasn't fair, and it wasn't Joseph's fault. And yet, what did he do when he had a dream that the interpretation was clear that his brothers and even his parents would bow down to him someday? What did he do? He told them about it. Shouldn't he have known not to tell them about it? And it led to him being sold into slavery. What they did was terribly wrong. God had told Abraham many years before that his descendants, that Abraham's descendants would spend 400 years in a foreign land. Joseph was the forerunner there. And God used his naivety, his ignorance, his lack of social awareness to send him before. And so he spends years in prison after being accosted by Potiphar's wife. And we think, poor Joseph, he didn't deserve that either. And it's true, he didn't deserve that, but I wonder if he could have avoided it. After being sold into slavery at the age of 17, he was a young, good-looking man. He's brought into Potiphar's house. I'm sure he was at Potiphar's place for quite some time before he was promoted and promoted and promoted and eventually in charge of everything in Potiphar's house. And I wonder if he wasn't lonely and feeling misunderstood. And then Potiphar's wife, who was 
likely much older than him, really began to notice him. I wonder if he opened up to her, if he trusted her. I wonder if he told her about his dreams and how he had been sold into slavery by his brothers. I wonder if he trusted her and opened up too much. And it's not that he really did anything wrong, not in a sinful way, but it was ignorant and it was naive. And she fell in love with him because she saw him as this young and attractive man who was smart, who had a calling on his life. And certainly she was a sinful woman. But it didn't just start with her seeing him and wanting to have sex with him. There had to be a backstory there. And when Joseph was in jail after being betrayed and lied about by Potiphar's wife, I wonder if he sat there and thought about the mistakes that he's made. I wonder if he grew in wisdom as a result. I wonder if the tribulation that Joseph went through helped him become more godly as he grew in wisdom, as he learned to keep his mouth shut, as he learned to discern who was it that he could really trust. Many of us have bad things happen to us, and it's not because of our own sin. Sometimes bad things happen to good people, and it's because God wants to use it to develop our character, to make us like him. Now, it doesn't always have to be that way. I wonder if Joseph had not told his brothers or his parents his dreams, and he kept them to himself, I wonder if God would have sent the Israelites to Egypt a different way. Maybe Joseph didn't have to go through all that. And yet still, God, use, God uses all things, and he makes them work together for the good of those who are called according to his name, those who work according to his purpose. God makes all things work together for us. But sometimes our foolishness, sometimes our naivety, brings about more suffering than what we'd otherwise have to go through. This word tribulation, this affliction, this inward pressure, this distress in our souls as we deal with our sin, as we deal with the uncomfort, the discomfort of not being who we know we're supposed to be, as we press into that, we do what we know is right. And it changes us. It gets a little easier the next time to the recovering alcoholic who just wants a drink for whatever reason, whether it's habit, whether it's running from hurt, whether it's drowning sorrows, whether it's numbing the pain, go a day without a drink and it gets easier. Embrace that discomfort and you'll grow as a result. And friends, when you die, there will be no more growth. 
you will not gain any more wisdom. You will not gain any more righteousness. The only things we can take with us when we die are our memories and our character. If you are still struggling with hidden sin, what makes you think when you die you'll be a better person then than you are now? Deal with it. Get rid of it. Embrace the suck. Do the hard work. This word translated tribulation, this Strong's Greek 2347, is actually quite a common word in the New Testament Greek. Actually, 45 times that it's brought up. Jesus used that same word in the parable of the sower. There's those four soils in Matthew 13, beginning in verse 18. Hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. That soil of the heart is hard packed. It's been stepped on so many times and trodden on. It's so firmly packed together that nothing can grow there. The seed can't penetrate that ground. Verse 20 says, The one on whom the seed was sown in the rocky places, this is the one, this is the person who hears the word and immediately receives it in joy, yet he has no firm root in himself. And it's only temporary when affliction or persecution arises because of the word immediately he falls away. Will you be the believer who falls away because of thalipsis, tribulation? When things get hard, are you going to quit? Or will you let that difficulty cause you to rise up and become someone God is calling you to be? The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10 that no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. God will never tempt you beyond what you can bear, but he will always provide a way out. We as Christians must be people who stop giving in when things get hard. Because if we give in when things get hard and we don't grow, that's equivalent. We're seeing here in Revelation 7 verse 14, it's equivalent to not donning the white robe of righteousness that is given to those who survive the great tribulation. In Matthew 24, Jesus is talking about the end of all times. And he says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, in verse 29, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Again in verse 29, it's after the tribulation that these things take place. We all are going through tribulation. 
in John 16, 21, Jesus uses that same word, tribulation or anguish, to refer to the pain that a mother feels when she's delivering her baby. Her pain is turned to joy when she sees the baby, when she holds her baby. It was worth it. Friends, it is worth it when we go through the hard work of being transformed into the image of Christ, when we embrace tribulation. That word, thalipsis, comes from the root word in the Greek, thalibo, which means to press or to afflict. It's the same root word that Jesus used in Matthew 7, verse 14, that says, Narrow is the way that leads to life. The gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Will you be one of the few who endures tribulation? It's the same word used in Hebrews 11, verse 37, talking about the great cloud of witnesses by which we are surrounded. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, pressed, going through tribulation, ill-treated. Men of whom the world was not worthy. Is the world worthy of you, my friend? Will you do the hard work of embracing that compression, that affliction, that distress, that tribulation? Will you be one of whom? finds that narrow path that leads to life. Will you wash your robe and make them white in the blood of the Lamb? Rejoice in your tribulation, my friend. Repent of your sin. Ask Jesus to forgive you and then ask him to give you a new love. May you love his word and hate the things that draw you away from it. Be exalted in glory as you are changed. Pray the prayer that he taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed, holy be your name. Your kingdom come in my heart. Your will be done in my heart as it is in heaven. Give us today only what we need for today. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation. Father, don't let me be tempted. But deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Be exalted, O God. Let me tell you, friend, when you are struggling with sin, pray. And ask God to change your heart so that you no longer want the sinful thing. Ask God to change your heart and make you like Him for His glory. In Jesus' name. God bless you. If I can pray for you, shoot me a message. 
go to BibleInOrder.com, fill out a contact form. I will pray for you.